Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, all citizens of the world, welcome to the Forum. Today we have for you our postscript to the Antarctica Unveiled series with Cliff High. In fact, it's a compilation of several updates Cliff did with us when he was back for a show on consciousness and another on death. At this moment of recording, the latter is not out to the public yet, but our website subscribers can enjoy it as they have today's program, since we've had these Antarctica updates uh, available at our website as bonus clips for our subscribers. But now they have been compiled into one smooth show to fit our general YouTube and podcast format. The contents is fresh, and this show should really be regarded as part four of our series with him. If you have not heard the previous three parts, it is strongly recommended that you do, even if today's show can be enjoyed independently on its own. But first, a few words about Mr. High. He was born into a military family, with a father who did intel work, and so lived abroad and moved around a lot in his years of growth. Though an autodidact in several areas, he's been into computers from its inception, and has kept up to date, currently even teaching himself quantum computing. He's worked for Microsoft, GEC, Marconi, La Unum, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and many other private and public companies as a contract software engineer and programmer. He also has a strong background in linguistics and human behavioral studies. Cliff High owns tons of wits and self-irony and humbly describes himself as an old bald guy living out in the woods, screwing around with computers. This understatement doesn't hide the fact that he programs in over a dozen computer languages and has a patent on computer-assisted reading technology, which allows reading from computer screens at up to 2,000 words per minute. His claim to fame is his brilliant 1993 invention called WebBot, which took until 97 for completion to get the code done. WebBot is an internet bot computer program that, through prognostic linguistics, is able to intercept global events before they happen. The WebBot forecast has had documented successes, like predicting the $13,000 Bitcoin price, Trump's election, the anthrax attack in Washington, the crash of America 507, the Columbia disaster, the Northeast power outage, and the Banda earthquake, and most recently the flooding of Red River. To name some examples, WebBot uses the Prolog AI computer language that, through word and phrase-centered process, extracts naturally occurring 
quote-unquote leaks from the collective unconscious through everyone's routine communications. He founded the Half Past Human Adventures and offers subscription-based access to detailed reports extracted from the webbot results. Although he doesn't write books, his many Alta or asymmetric language trend analysis reports are extensive and measures up to books. He's been featured in TV like History Channel and of course magazines and innumerable podcasts and radio shows like Coast to Coast and describes himself as a fiercely dedicated Aikidoka focused on life, freedom and the future with a desire to free people from tyranny reject the Fed's fake money called dollars and embrace Bitcoin, gold and silver. As a typical genius, his creativity and productivity finds outlets in several areas, like his inventions in boat and water life, of which he is a passionate activist. But above all, Cliff is a natural philosopher and has been a yogi for over 50 years, practicing Aikido and Zazen meditation for over 30 years. Indeed, he is a versatile fellow, though not a mere armchair philosopher who's read a few books, but a genuine psychonaut who brings to the table experience-based insights, coupled with adequate intuition and educational knowledge he has attained of an obscure, original and peculiar nature. What he has shared with us hitherto on Antarctica checks out. So, today, you are into a treat for the additional info he's kindly dropped by to share with us. Welcome back to the forum, Cliff. Thank you very much. For a urgent update, I guess we could call it. Uh, an interesting one. I don't know about the level of urgency, but um, breaking news, so to speak, certainly. Yeah, I have um, some of my own. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, ha I had a show yesterday on Hollow Earth, by the way. Mm. Um, it was a scientist I interviewed who who was actually into expanding Earth also. He said it's two aspects of the same thing. He's, he even said Tom van Flanden was supporting the whole of Earth and expanding Earth. But anyway, oh. first I want to ask you, there's rumors going around that you, I guess when you were at the hospital, there were a break-in? Uh, no, it, it occurred prior to my going into the hospital. I was ill here, but yes, there was a break-in in my old house, yes. Damn, that's where the photos are, right? No. Oh, so they didn't take the photos. No, that that stuff was uh, put into a uh, like a hey, don't tell. shipping container. Yeah, don't say it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I'm pretty sure that's why there was a break-in. No, I think it was a. I think it was a related. I don't think that was the real issue. I think it was related to um, uh, other stuff. But stuff you've been talking on air about. Yeah. Yeah, see? It's, it's, yeah, you know, consequences. Yep, no yeah, question. Be careful, man. So, hmm. Well, I'm pretty glad people on our channel thought that was why. I, I kind of felt uh, partly guilty here. <laughs> no, no, and see, there were there were certainly uh, business, uh, you know, records and stuff that were involved, but um, oh, I don't yeah. see that as a I, – I mean, it was other aspects of what I do, right? Right, right, right. The, the Bitcoin thing, the crypto thing. Of correct, course, yes. correct. Yep. Of course. 
Well, okay, we cleared that up. But let's uh, let's do a postscript on Antarctica, Cliff, because I just saw you tweet, or maybe it wasn't the tube, you shared the heat map. Yes, the Strava heat map, yes. Damn, that's interesting. My first question to you is, what are those red lines in the water? Well, that's a really good question. It's people on boats, I'm presuming, or airplanes. The little red line is a uh, GPS tracking of uh, basically a Fitbit, the little um, activity monitors that people wear to enhance their fitness, right? Mm. And the, these things are continually reporting what you're doing where and so on. And the, so the red lines are uh, activity trails. Uh, the thicker they are, the more activity there. That they exist at all means that it's more than one person doing it one time. Right. And, um, and so there, it's a very intriguing tracks there, uh, from some of these islands. <laughs> it and is. it's why do they, why do they have this, this, um, route going with these islands and Antarctica that way? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I uh, thought maybe f at first it could be some kind of heat, like like they transfer energy from one continent to another, or you know, some kind of pipeline. Because no. I saw these, uh, I saw these lines going all the way from Argentina and onto Antarctica. You can see the road there yourself. Yeah, it's very busy. And it's going through this. Well, south. What, they, what they are is is individual people leaving a trail, right. and then it builds up into a red line over time. So this is actual human activity. I think it's in the area where they have cruise ships, so they may, might explain. Uh, it may indeed. The really interesting ones, though, I just put another photo up on um, Twitter that shows the global heat map on in Australia with the map and the satellite visible, and it it shows, to my mind, two pyramids. And it shows the human activity around these two pyramids from a global satellite perspective, from a from a uh, aerial photography kind of a thing. You can see that there there basically appear to be two mountains that are close together, mm. no valley or in, anything in between. These two mountains are sitting on a plain, independent of anything else. And mountains usually don't just spring up that way, mm. nor do they form themselves into um, pyramidical shapes, even somewhat disguised with uh, snow and rock and so on. And of course, what is really curious here is we see some incredible activity of the humans around what might be considered to be the entrances to these structures, if they were indeed structures and not naturally occurring mountains. And then even more interesting is there is a, a on there is a top of the, um, from our perspective of the left-hand pyramid, there's all kinds of activity at the top of the, of the left-hand pyramid. However, one will note there's no trail on the outside of the pyramid leading up to that activity. So one may suppose that they got inside it and then came up close enough to the cap that their, their mm. uh, activity monitors could, in fact, uh, beam out, so to speak, be picked up, whereas they weren't picked up on the journey up to the top. And so it appears to be showing us that, indeed, these are structures. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but uh, where in Antarctica, there's so many light points there. Um, you'd have to look on the uh, map that I posted here on. Oh, another one on uh, Twitter. Yeah. What I do know is that yeah, I see the map now. What I do know is that there is indeed very famous. There's actually three mountains in a row in Antarctica that people even find on Google Maps mm -hmm. that are shaped like pyramids. But you know, 
debunkers and stuff say it's just weird uh, mountains. <laughs> you probably know. Are these the, if these are the same, you can actually find them on on Google Maps. Oh, uh, these are only two isolated. I don't believe this is the one with the three pair. I know of oh. um, uh, at least seven different sites in Antarctica that have. Uh, structures or mountains that appear to be uh, structures or vice versa, right? Okay. So they in, uh, so there are seven different locations where you can look and, and say, looks awful pyramidical to me. And what's a real <laughs> telling point is that there's no mountain range or, or um, anything near this flat area except for these two very pyramid-looking uh, uh, mountains that just yeah. come right up out of the plain. It's true. Look at that. Wow. People go to Cliff's Twitter feed. Uh, what's what's the name of your Twitter? Uh, Cliff Underbar High. C-L-I-F Underbar H-I-G-H. Okay. So that should be easy to find. But, uh, well, it's probably easy to find. You have so many followers there anyway. But if you go there, you see both the Strava heat map we're talking about and you'll see the... But uh, what you also can do, you can go to the heat map, you can zoom in on uh, the coordinates where you see activity and then you can switch to Google Map. Yeah. And if Google shows you what's going down, fine and dandy. That's exciting. It's like you have your own little private satellite, right? But if they don't show it, you can be sure. You know, if it's one of these cartoonish, then you know you're onto something. Well, let's let's also say that there was a um, another strangeness at the other pole. Uh, another one of these heat map uh, elements uh, shows us all kinds of activity in the Arctic. On a yeah, on well, I looked for that. I didn't find anything actually. There's a um, uh, let me see if I can relocate it now. I'll see if I can send. Unless you mean Svalbard and these. No, islands. there were these. Uh, there are these coordinates that were given out, um, and if you just put the coordinates into the into the map, you end up with this small unnamed island in the Arctic that uh-huh. has got a, an incredible amount of activity for being a small unnamed island in the Arctic, and it's actually blacked out on. Some of the other, some of the Google Maps. If you just go yeah. to it directly with the um, lat long, you can see that it shows you a cartoon look of a of an island. Uh, there isn't really any satellite information that's visible, but then if you flip onto the satellite, you can see the <coughs> the shape, the topography of the island itself. It's very small. Mm. <coughs> it doesn't even look like there would be adequate facilities for boats to um, uh, large boats anyway to to be able to land anyone there, and yet. There's a very large number of red lines within this um, uh, coordinated area uh, that suggests that there's been a lot of activity with people wearing these devices. Okay, I don't see anything north of Svalbard and Franz Josef's land, but I do see weird uh, lines, again, which means it's more than one person, in unha- uh, what do you say? uninhabited islands. Yeah, uninhabited, yes. Yeah, uninhabited islands. There's many lines there you can even see the route where they're coming from they're coming from russia and uh, just uh, above the border from norway they're coming from there and there's many of them it's probably a military ship or something patrolling i don't know but how can we trust this map then why would uh, they not maybe they didn't think of it they didn't. This appears to be, uh, okay, we know that this was a um, basically a very large screw-up, a huge security hole, oh. uh, because it was unfiltered, and it also shows all of the U.S. military bases globally, many of which were supposed to have been secret. And the company in San Francisco is, at this time, 
has been made aware of this and is scrubbing their heat mat to block <laughs> out some of this stuff. And there's also now been, as of uh, sometime yesterday, I think, because it was in Zulu time, I can't remember, but as of sometime uh, yesterday, there's been an um, uh, advisory from the U.S. military telling people that wear these these devices to turn them off if you're in a secure, uh, right. you know, a sensitive area. Right, right. So they hadn't hadn't ever considered that. They hadn't, you know, because they'll tell these guys to turn off the GPS and location beacons in their phones yeah. or to use secure satellite phones. Uh, but, you know, here was something they just obviously slipped right through. Sure. Well, uh, but did you take copies? Did you save before? Yes, I've been, I've been saving the, the maps, yes. Mm, okay. Great. This is uh, material for... More revelations, I guess. Now, <clears throat> there were several aspects of what we discussed in the main show that was very popular. And of course, people freaked out. The teaser was pretty brilliant, if I have to say it myself. We, <laughs> it's not often that we put out clickbait like that. But of course, people freaked out from the title. And uh, just like a postscript to, I won't explain something as a postscript to that, because you were always referring to your boxes and people thought it was an excuse. That's because you told me before the show that you're in the middle of moving and everything is in boxes, right? Correct, <laughs> correct. Even more so today, and I hurt from the effort. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so just so they understand why you were always referring to those boxes, those mystical boxes where everything was lost. <laughs> well, it, well, yes, and it's not lost. It's simply I don't know which boxes it, it's in, and the boxes are in several, in two locations now, so separated by hours. So when you've done moving, uh, things. Things will get back to normal. Yes, and so uh, I'm thinking over the month of February, maybe I'll start getting actually to the point of unboxing some of this stuff. Mm. Oof, I'm going to move myself this year. I don't look forward to it. I hate moving, but I love having moved. That's the best feeling. Yeah, and I think I'm about um, <clears throat> a quarter of the way through, so I can at least see the end and then hopefully see the uh, relaxation on the other, yeah, uh, other side of it. That's so inspiring. That's so inspiring. One final thing, and we'll move on. Um, so at the end of the program, you talked about activities going down there. And you were talking about, because obviously you know about Lockheed Martin has a huge, they're hiring down there right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're not alone. No. And, and the other firm, what was the name again? Lados, L-E-I-D-O-S, Lados. Okay. They were connected with GPL or something? No, no. Uh, SAIC. They're an outgrowth of SAIC, the uh, scientific okay. um, whatever the hell corporation. So what's the official excuses that these companies use down there? I hear uh, global warming, although that's now mentioned uh, less frequently, and uh, now the uh, main internal language appears to be all about resource exploitation. Okay. But of course, you know, some of their um, hirings make the resource acquisition. I mean, it, when you hear that and then you find out that they've been hiring um, uh, academics with a dual uh tracks in their history that include translations right. so they've been hiring people that are known translators and differing language groups so it's a little a little curious as to why you would want a translator in antarctica absolutely uh, Any, anyway so but then you now they're 
at the point where they know they're, or where we are demonstrably building a civilization there. We know this because they're hiring, um, massage therapist and, you know, uh, these, these kind of people that exactly that are there for the, the care and the, in the, the feeding of the individuals that work there and not the primary mission. So this is a, then that's where, you know, a civilization is being established when they hire a massage. You got it. But, but you know, um, even I was uh, fooling around a little on, on Google Earth because I wanted to see how updated it is uh, because they had a lot of criticism not showing. They either show very unclear pictures or very obviously brushed pictures or just, you know, what I call cartoons. Yeah. And when I <clears throat> zoomed in on McMurdo, I was amazed how big that's become now. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's like a, it could be a town on Svalbard or something. And that's probably, if you're on Google, that's got to be at least two years old, I would think. Right. There so who knows what's since then. But I know that the uh, last year in 2016 on this one port, they had seven um, cargo ships. And of those, three of them were container ships. And those are, these weren't giant container ships. These are not very extremely large. These are self-loading and unloading. So they go to the reasonably smaller ports where there isn't much in the way of uh, onshore cranes. Nonetheless, though, the fact that they're trucking down that many uh, large supply vessels to this one small area is very indicative of the amount of the population that's growing there. Hmm. And even, even, um, the uh, Antarctic uh, Commission or whoever it was that put out the PR notice said that in 2000 and in, they reported in 2017 that 2016 was the uh, largest amount of food ever shipped to Antarctica. And it was more than twice what had ever been shipped there before. Right. And so the, the logistics guys were proud of it. They got a PR uh, blip out of it. And uh, no one really thought, I, I think, about what that tells us all <laughs> no no they, i mean uh, they're so deep buried in so many it's easier for them to keep track of what truth they've been telling us rather than what lies <laughs> and when you're there you go there when you you're go. bogged down in that network of lies then obviously it's so many aspects you have to keep track of so it's easy to forget <laughs> which you right, know which right. angle we can bust them on right? right and this heat map is an example so they always have to put out fires instead of being able to see forward so uh, i get that but i i saw even on one of the official google map images i saw this huge transportation ship it was docked and yeah. i think it was in mcmurdoch one of those places so they can't even hide it from the official uh, footage no and they can't uh, you know and they can't deny that there's airplanes and helicopters that can be seen from uh, these Google Earth maps and others. And, you know, supposedly Antarctica is a no-fly zone. Mm. And they repeatedly are saying that the interior part of it is a no-fly zone. But they've got a lot of... Um, they have airports. <laughs> airports and runways. And the runways are, are focused on cross-Antarctic traffic, not traffic uh, that's going to be leaving the continent. Right. Right. And uh, if it was global warming, because they have to put up some excuse, but the problem is, uh, I, I bet they want to say, oh, we're just mining for resources. That should be their go-to uh, mm -hmm. debunker story, right? But they can't say that because of the <laughs> official <laughs> ban on exploration. You see, so they have to right. resort to something as retarded as global warming. Right. But this is beyond science. This stuff here. So, and it's uh, beyond it's beyond diplomacy with penguins. You know, the the 
people that are going there at such high levels uh, begs the question of basically what the hell is down there that would require. Yeah, we didn't we didn't ask you that. What's the official cover story for sending down all the luminaries? Every single one of them, with the exception of the Eastern prelates, um, the head of the Eastern Ortho- Russian Orthodox Church, with the exception of that particular visit, all the others have referenced global warming. Wow. Inclu- including the, the Newt Gingrich visit, right? And yet, it, it, it just makes no sense at all. Now, that's the go-to excuse. That's obvious. Right. Right. Hmm. And, you know, it's, it's very um, annoying because we are not that stupid. And they, if they come on out and they say that this is the excuse and global warming is a failing concept. And, but even if it weren't, the uh, way in which they're going about it just begs the question for everybody that's paying attention as to basically what's going on. Because obviously this excuse is bullshit. Obviously. Hey, I got one of the, we don't have many flat earthers among our audience, and I'm right. kind of relieved. But <laughs> yeah. we have one very bright guy who, who seems to go in that direction, and he asked a question that you can answer, and then we can and then we can wrap this up. He says, well, a military plane traveling at 30,000 altitude could technically cross the Antarctica and have fuel for it. And he asks why nobody has ever crossed Antarctica, basically. Yeah, that's not really related to uh, the topography of the continent. It's related to whatever is there that is probably related to that giant magnetic uh, anomaly. The reason that they don't fly across the middle of Antarctica is that every single time that it's happened, with, with rare exceptions they've had extreme difficulty with the airplanes and the people. Mm. And so uh, it has been reported by flight crews that were just doing a, um, a small hop for the military. And, and one of the things I ran across years ago was this reporting that anybody that was flying this particular route would end up with headaches and their instruments would go wonky. And even when John Glenn was down there and was flying around, it was reported um, that they had uh, navigation and uh, uh, aeronautics issues with the airplane he was on. And, of course, he was made ill, as were all the other people there on the on that airplane, including some of the people that were not uh, pilots but were, like, um, were passengers like John Glenn. And so that was the curious part. He was not the only one that was ill at that time, and it wasn't a heart attack that affected the whole plane. So I think personally that the reason they don't fly across Antarctica – uh, has to do with the giant magnetic anomaly and perhaps other radiative sources that are coming out of the continent that just make a wreck, uh, havoc on um, avionics. Mm. That makes sense. Plus, you get shot down if they if you're not cleared <laughs> to even be there with your plane. Yeah, well, you wouldn't wouldn't have a, an option of putting your plane even on the continent without being cleared by the military. Even all the crews people that go on cruise ships where they never even land have to be vetted by the military yeah hey i talked with one of my video makers and he uh, checked he listened to the show and uh, he checked one of the cruise ships going down there and you know what he discovered what's that every single bastard working on that cruise ship are ex-cia employees Oh, weird, weird. No, it's not weird. I see. Oh, I, no, I mean, yeah. It's logical, never right? Would, never would have thought of that, yeah. No, but they, they have to, right? Because if something happens, 
they have to know how to handle it. <laughs> they know what can happen, right? Sure, sure. Because uh, it's risky p- putting all those people down there. Maybe it's supposed to finance the, whatever they're doing. But at any rate, sending civil people, even if it's just in the outskirts, nibbling at Antarctica, where, where it's totally safe to go, even there stuff can happen. We saw, you remember the story I had, right, with the boat? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that makes so sense. You have to be vetted by the CIA so you know how to debunk this, how to, how to cover up whatever's going down if something should happen. And that tells me they're not totally in control of whatever. No, but it, be- it begs the question as to why allow the cruise ships at all. You know, that was yeah. a curious thing, but mm-hmm. there was a building, I think, I mean, I'm putting it down at this point to, um, I think that it was an attempt by the powers that be to take some of the emotional pressure off, that there was so much interest in Antarctica, they wanted to make it much more mundane. And so by having cruise ships go there, it it makes it into a tourist destination and removes a lot of the mystery, at least within the linguistics that they're able to promulgate out. And so that was my supposition. But it's a risky a risky effort, but it makes sense that they would have CIA as, as crew members. Mm. It does. And I think uh, what you're saying here, a very important point, emotional relief, yes, but also, you know, having, um, contributing to the hype, uh, you know, whitewashing the hype kind of, yes. and explaining why there's so many people in the area and, you know, just trying to get Antarctica to be a place so that, oh yeah, we're sending luminaries down, we're building out the science stations, but they have to come up with a better story than global warming eventually. <laughs> yeah. Well, Why don't they just go like they tried to do, you know, remember a few decades ago or maybe just one decade ago, they were, oh, we found bacteria from Mars or something. If they just could stick with that <laughs> right, little right. drip, right? Like, right, oh, we right. can alien life forms, bacteria, right. something like that. And we that. don't want humans there with their bacteria polluting everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that right. is true, right. So, no, I don't know. But uh, and another thing is, isn't Antarctica freezing over actually these days? Arctic is melting, but Antarctic is growing. Actually, the ice mass on Antarctica, as near as we can figure out, is growing in the ocean, not on the continent. It's actually withdrawing from the continent and and shifting off. And this may be related to... um, change in our magnetic poles because bear in mind it's the magnetic pole that brings down the um the vortex of the cold so to speak that causes the freezing and so if the south pole and the north pole are actually um gone wobbly then uh the new south pole wherever that is is going to freeze and it apparently is off of the continent of antarctica some distance and we now see that the ice is growing on one side of antarctica in the ocean and and growing um, in the direction of deeper ocean, not back up onto the land. So very curious indeed. Indeed. So, um, yeah, and, and by the way, I sent you, I don't know if you had time to check it, I sent you something regarding Antarctica. Sure, sure. The um, Their version of Area 51, the rumors of the arrival zone, yeah. Yeah, were you aware of that already? Yes, I was. It's actually been um, – so Area 51 in the United States is considered to be uh, the lost leader, that part of, uh, you know, too well known to be useful. 
And uh, thus, it, the supposition is that a lot of the stuff that had been um, uh, going on underneath Area 51 has now been moved to two other bases, one of which is in um, uh, underground in Washington State, the other is underground in Utah. And so Area 51 has been deprecated, so to speak, in terms of actual importance within the uh, the uh, hidden world of um, the military-industrial complex. Yeah, it became it became a site like Roswell, right? Everybody knew correct, about it. Correct, correct. Everybody knew about it. It became less useful, and the amount of time they could use it for, you know, test flights, etc., uh, was really shrunk because there were just too many people around, and so on. Uh, so they had to had to relocate the same. Uh, under or same um, analogy can be given to the arrival zone uh, bases in uh, Antarctica in the mountains above uh, McMurdo. Those were uh, very active in the 70s, and that's where all that technology originated from. Uh, but but the um, current understanding is that there it's too well known and too well surveilled. I guess by satellites would be my my guess. But in any event. Uh, too well known to be that useful anymore, and that the operations that had been there had been shifted uh, more towards the um, African side of the coastline down from McMurdo in that direction. You can't really say south, but basically south, <laughs> yeah, south right. of McMurdo. South becomes north, so yeah, <laughs> correct. Yeah, yeah. We we took on that uh, yesterday with uh, I mentioned the Hollow Earth show we had. Um, there is a bit of uh, complications because of you know in the model if there are curves there and and holes even um about magnetism and oh, i see yeah but he told me that the reason they're not uh taking satellites or releasing satellites photographs over the pole is because of uh, i think i think it's 2006 law about or it was 96 or 2006 i'm not sure about <laughs> the has to do with national security because they don't want the enemy, quote unquote, to be able to fly over the pole to get to wherever. So that's excuse at least. And it makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, two reasons in one. Why not? <laughs> sure, sure. And the, and the fact of the matter is that when you see satellite uh, imagery from either the North or the South Pole, they're relying on our, our, preconception of these as giant icy mass hmm. uh, to not notice that they've put a giant uh, white filter over huge areas of what's going on up there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the Google guys, et cetera, you know, they're doing uh, a satellite photo touch up just like NASA. Yeah. But they should be, just be honest about it and say, Hey, we're not getting stuff from here. So, yeah, that's there's a different different situation though. Okay, because you can go to Google and uh, request masking if you have a legitimate reason for privacy or whatever on uh, your property uh, that you you can demonstrate you own, and uh, they will apply a filter to it. But that filter that they apply is not what we're seeing in these other areas. So it's mm -hmm. not the same mechanism nor the same department, so to speak, of the organization that does that level of work, even though they're both doing similar stuff, which is to obscure uh, land details in the satellite photos. Yeah, but I'm imagining that they are dimming it when it gets 
you know, when they know something, they found something anywhere on Earth, they are covering that up. Sure. But when it comes to the poles, they're kind of dimming it the closer you get to the action. But I, I'm not so sure they actually get pictures of the holes. I, I think they that's the problem. I think that's why it's even more cartoon anywhere mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, else than in the middle of the uh, center of the pole. That's just basic white pixels. Anyone yeah, can do exactly. that. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it is just a white filter, right? The same thing is true of big areas of Antarctica. But someone discovered something very funny. If you go under the uh, uh, sea, you can do that in, uh, you know, you have 3D view and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Both in the North Pole and the South Pole. You know what happens then? No. <laughs> it. You should check it out. It curves down into a hole. <laughs> That's funny. Into a spiral. That's funny. It is. And so either it's just, you know, it could be tongue-in-cheek, wink-wink. It could be algorithmically yeah. based as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's uh, probably the real reason. But then you have the wonderful synchronicity of life. <laughs> right? Right. It's never dull. Never dull. No. So uh, that's that. And w- another thing he told me, what was that about? Was it about expanding Earth theory? Um, damn, I forgot. Well, you know, the expanding Earth theory actually does provide a geologic um, mechanism whereby the Earth is actually honeycombed, not hollow per se, not a thin shell around a giant cavern, but rather uh, interlaced with big caverns just as the result of the um, continual growth of the, the matter and the fact that it breaks apart. Right. And and the honeycomb model is also very ancient because they claim that no matter, you know, entrances at the poles, there are supposed to be caves, caverns that goes from anywhere on Earth. Uh, I think Giza, Tibet, several, and as mountains. Sure, the Kilimanjaro. Yeah, right, right. stuff like the that. The rumors about uh, the Nazi expedition into Kilimanjaro, I think, in like... Hitler had barely been in power, so yeah. <laughs> it was like 35 or 36. Yeah, and, and monks have apparently been traveling to and fro, although it's going to be twice as long journey for those people because they're already at the top of the world. Right, they got some more, more mass to walk down, yeah. right. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, what else? Uh, we talked about something else I wanted to talk with you about. Well, I'm trying to remember that. Have you seen the latest about the pyramids in Giza? About the energy aspect of it? Yep. Yeah, that uh, that really fits, you know, with the uh, Russian work on uh, energetic parameters of the 51 degrees, 51 minute uh, angle within pyramids. And then it also fits, of course, with every one of these giant pyramids, Bosnia, you know, Giza, Antarctica, and Australia, and some of these others, all being associated with UFOs. And it, and it sort of makes sense at that level that if they're, um, you know, concentrators of energy, sort of like a natural active capacitor, that they're going to be attractive to uh, those kind of uh, devices. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, but the, the the really mind blow isn't really what they have discovered and measured, uh, but that they're actually releasing it. There's a there's a reason for that though, and that's because the 
uh, it's been known, I guess, um, a number of years ever since, and I can't think of the guy's name, um, uh, starts with an S, I think, but he, um, he's an engineer and he proposed that the Giza plateau, maybe this was in the late nineties or something. He proposed this and wrote a book about how the pyramid was in fact an energy, uh, energy generation. Oh, Christopher Dunn. Uh, I think he was the second. I'm talking about the guy that this guy that wrote just a monograph on it. Okay. Didn't write a book. Okay. And his idea, uh, basically he laid out how that, um, with salt water available to you, how you could generate electricity on the, on the pyramid and the limestone surface of it would have been very highly energized. And, um, Oh, so, you mean shock and West? No, uh, it's not shock, but it's close to that. It's like, I, I want to say that it was, shock, um, I think it's S-A-R-T-L-E-Y, like Sartley or something like that. He was a British guy. He wrote a monograph. It was maybe 50 pages or so. It had been published some time back that it was, I saw it as a a scan of a paper article, not a digital format. Mm. In any event, though, uh, the supposition was that it was at that point that some people started looking into the idea of of adapting the a pyramid shape to energy uh, development devices. So since the article has come out, I've become aware of a couple of uh, solar panel uh, manufacturing people that are now starting to build, or at least have experiments underway, building uh, photovoltaic cells uh, around this idea of interconnected thousands of little, if you will, micro-miniature pyramids all within the cell. And this in the uh, early reports you can find out about this is that the um, production rate uh, just goes through the roof and a lot of the problems with photovoltaics and, you know, cloud forms and this kind of thing disappear uh, because of this extra added boost of the um, geom- underlying geometry of the cell itself. Right. So they may have had to do that simply because it may be about to enter the public consciousness in a, in a pretty uh, significant way. Yeah, because uh, usually when they do stuff like that, it's because they have to, not because of charity. Correct. <laughs> not because they want to and, tell us, no. Yeah, yeah. And, but we know already, I mean, uh, in, in the Eastern Bloc, back in the day, they used to, especially in countries like Czechoslovakia and stuff, they were had to be very clever and economical so sure because they weren't the richest people and one thing that was very popular uh, which goes to show another weird feature of the pyramid and the sacred geometry is that they sold manufactured small pyramids people could take uh, in their home Mm -hmm. and they were very popular to put razor blades under because it was a matter of fact that razor blades wouldn't uh, decay that fast. It was so much a preserving factor that it became economical, so everybody had it. And you could, of course, have it, you know, over plants, and they would grow faster. Uh, you could preserve food. Yep. Yeah, food. Yep, yep. I guess this uh, ties yeah, into... I had coast- some Russian, Russian friends in the 60s that had uh, manufactured... Um, pyramids that were used in the kitchen as a sort of a one or two day food preservative kind of a thing. And they even aided in the ripening of fruit that was picked early. Right. So just to people realize how practical and, and tangible this stuff is, it's not just like, you know, new age hypothesis, speculation. It's actually things you can measure. And, uh, 
So we see now they released this energy burst in the Giza pyramid, and it's and it's even more official than normal because what's this called a new dictator? Sisa, something like that, a dictator of Egypt who. Oh, I don't, I don't know the political personalities, but yeah, I know who you're speaking of. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a general he took over. I forgot his name, uh, but anyway, he is completely lined up with the CIA, so they wouldn't do anything that would go against what we ought to know. Well, there's a there's another aspect of that, especially about Egypt, and that is uh, what's his name. Um, uh, Alway, you know, or something, the guy who's the head Egyptologist, the, the guardian of the all things officialdom for Egypt. The uh, new one or the one who's been there all, up until recently? The one who's been there all the time. Yes, Sahih uh, Havas. Uh, Avas, yes. There Complete we go. psychopath. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to cover him in a show. But he's also, he's uh, uh, got a long lineage of disinformation to support. So yep. the fact that they would bring out anything that would be even hint at about other uses for the pyramid other than as, you know, Khufu's tomb yeah. um, uh, really does go towards saying that there's some level of big pressure on them uh, at this time that hasn't existed in the past. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because Avas has always been maintained that, no, the only f- function of the pyramids is as tombs. And and yet uh, here we are now starting to shade towards the idea that these things were in fact generation electrical generation plants. Yeah, very true. Any discovery that was going to uh, happen or happened, he uh, took credit for. That was uh, the whole deal. Uh, any traditional ecologist who could work there had to accept his dictatorship, yeah. and it just goes to show how corrupt Egyptology is because they have been living under this psychopath's whims for so long sure. that they become accustomed to it and they become tied to the ship and they have to defend everything that was happening under his rule. So I think I think uh, they're yielding now because alternative uh, or independent Egyptology, archaeology has become so strong and there's so many discoveries that they just can't uh, hold a line anymore. So they're just moving the the goalpost a little uh, to our... That may be the case, but there's also, I mean, going directly to our current subject here, the updates for Antarctica. Yeah, take it on now. Uh, Yeah, uh, the pressure on the powers that be has seriously escalated. I don't know what that pressure originates from, but I know that it is moving them to take actions that uh, otherwise, um, absent some kind of external, maybe even exogenic, as in out in space, uh, prompting, uh, these people would not be doing these actions. And we have we have um, <coughs> practical um, metrics by which we can uh, measure the amount of pressure that's on uh, the powers that be in the global science community. You know the the entire um, ruling elite or globalists throughout the, the planet. So it's, it's led by the U.S. and aided by New Zealand and Australia and England, et cetera, but it's not limited to them. The, the Western social order itself, though, that globalism is under some significant pressure. Yeah. As I say, I don't know what that pressure is, but I, I can observe a number of different aspects of that pressure. And like, so one of the updates I've got 
goes to the idea that the just in Christchurch, New Zealand alone, they've launched and um, uh, completed more Antarctic flights this winter than is usually done over the course of a whole year. So the the regular or usual. So we're talking. Hang on, we're talking Antarctica winter, right? Correct, Antarctica winter, and they never do this. Okay, mm. it's very dangerous, as we're we're led to believe in any event that it's very dangerous for aircraft of all kinds to attempt to operate in the Antarctic winter, and that does not matter where they're going to be operating within Antarctica. It's our understanding, or we're led to believe that this is very dangerous for aircraft. Now, we know, by the way, that there's this giant area in the center of Antarctica that they don't fly over, not because it, it's designated a no-fly zone, which is the case, but simply because the weird things happen to avionic electronics when they fly over these areas, you know, and they get strange effects. Maybe it relates to, you know, the hollow earth and the, and the gravity anomalies, and et cetera, but that's, that's aside from this. But nonetheless, just the more mundane... Um, view of flying in Antarctica in winter of the icing conditions, the, the terrible cold, the winds, etc., suggests that they just don't do this with any regularity. And now Christchurch usually fields about 100 flights a year, say five years ago or six years ago. That would be the norm. And, and 75 to 80 percent of those flights, so you know, 75 to 80 of these flights uh, would originate during the Antarctic summer. Antarctic, late Antarctic spring and Antarctic summer. Makes sense. And then as, and as soon as the um, weather started turning to their very brief fall uh, in Antarctica, the flights would, would taper down to, to nothing. Hmm. And we used to see the patterns here in the Pacific Northwest because the way in which the North America curves, there's a nice great circle route from uh, Washington State that goes right down to the South Pacific, and it's economical to fly there relative to fuel consumption. This is true for the C-130s and the 747s, where they have great uh, weight and loads they have to take with them. Now, uh, so we would see that here, and the effect of that was that in our uh, fall, we would have lots and lots and lots of these C-130 planes that would fly overhead. I lived in a military fly zone under, underneath that, mm. and we would have these flights take off to go and deliver material to New Zealand, which would then be taken by other planes into Antarctica. Well, um, the amount of activity or, or, and traffic from the C-130s out of the military bases up here uh, over these past two years is pretty continuous. It doesn't, it's not seasonal the way that it had been for several decades, and it's gotten to be rather um, predictable. And so they're obviously moving a great mass of material down to New Zealand for staging into um, Antarctica. And I've got uh, individuals that live around these staging areas in New Zealand that were kind enough to send me photographs that just show enormous amounts of planes crammed into every little area that they could possibly be uh, being loaded and getting readied. And then one fellow who did a uh, very accurate count and it showed that there were 77 planes that had taken off in the Antarctic winter. Jeez. And it, it, exactly. So it's, it's more than their usual uh, annual uh, tonnage. And, uh, of course, these are all 
all these planes are loaded up behind, often distant airfields behind security fences that are patrolled by people. And these are all off limits to the local population. Local population is very much, um, uh, you know, in support of the establishment, uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, political powers and the, and the way things are. And so they, it's not like it's filled with protests and this sort of thing, but mm. The local population is also observant of the level of activity that's going on down there and how it did not ramp down for Antarctic winter. This, this, is, fact, this is New Zealand, right? Correct. This is Christchurch, Cause... New Zealand airport. And then there's two other forbidden airports, I guess you'd have to say, or forbidden runways, areas you're not supposed to go. And I, I have one guy who lives out near one of them, and uh, he's reporting 747s bound for Antarctica being flown out of that area as well. Yeah, yeah, of course, um, my um, colleague, I guess is the word, uh, Gordon White of Rune Soup, he lives in Hobart in Tasmania. Okay. And they are also, they are almost as south as the south of New Zealand. And they too have a main basis for uh, Antarctica. And I'm soon going to interview him for his book. So I'm going to ask him because uh, his partner, I think, is involved in uh, Antarctic uh, stuff because it's a huge business there, right? Because it's sure. so close. So they have bases and flights there too. I'm going to ask him if he has noticed an increase from there too. Okay, cool. I know that that area is Americans. Uh, I guess it's Americans in New Zealand too. Correct. Mm. So then you... Very, very, um, you know, much an issue of um, the news, local New Zealand population is is dealing with a, uh, you know, a foreign um, resident invading power yeah. when they're attempting to get information out of these bases because these bases uh, don't even really, as far as I know, report what they're doing to the New Zealand government. Yeah, but do they offer um, like... Uh, jobs and, and, and money coming in. So people. Are oh, certainly. Oh, certainly. Right. No question. That's how they buy them off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of my sources are in fact within the, uh, very, very, very low level of, um, the security apparatus around there. Right? right. So guys that just drive around and patrol the perimeter of the fence, send me emails, that kind of thing. Right. And, and, and his partner, I have to say this, Gordon's partner applied for a job there and, he thought it was just like, you know, it's, it's just going to be scientific. He told me this when he interviewed me. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I was, uh, plugging, uh, our show about Antarctica. Then he said that, that he got questions upon questions, which are so weird that has to do with security. Hmm. Like, like yes. you, just to be higher there, they're going to filter you for very, uh, you should think it was Fort Knox or Area 51 he was going to work for. <laughs> right. <laughs> the this going to that same uh, point, uh, the the guy who sent me email who who is one of my sources around then that area and there's many, uh, but he was telling me about when he got hired on he tried to get a cousin of his hired on, and the cousin didn't pass the security vetting exactly. because the cousin's wife's father or grandfather uh, had been a member of a communist party. <laughs> There you go. There you go. <laughs> so it's like, okay, you know, the, the individual's not alive anymore, no. and yet it nonetheless taints you, and you can't drive a car around and look for intruders. You know? And communism is dead. So maybe, maybe 
the Poles aren't uh, occupied by Nazis. Maybe it's the communists. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or, or, yeah. or maybe they know the communists want to fight the Nazis so right. we can get into a problem or something. Right. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. But in any event, so this is duplicated. This information is duplicated by a guy I've been corresponding with for since maybe 2002. Okay, I've known him for a long time. He's a, um, a Brazilian. He operates out of very south little corner of Brazil. And he's, careful, don't give too much info away about him. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I was going to say, and he is a, a root salesman, okay? He's a, a product rep, and his job is basically to go and fill up containers of this specific product in these bodegas, in these small stores, and his route is about 15, 1,800 kilometers long. And he does this a couple of times a month, is my understanding, or a couple of times in like 45 days, he does this route. And along the route in uh, Uruguay and Paraguay are, again, staging bases for Antarctica that are wow. controlled by the Americans. And he knows this because he's been doing this route for a long time. These bases have been established, one of them anyway, has been established in this 15 or 18 year period of time. And uh, he also notices the effect of the uh, number of personnel at those bases on his sales in those local bodegas because he provides product that the uh, American and British populations uh, find to be, uh, you know, they like it. And I'm just not going to go into any details there. No. I know all about it, but I'm not going to share that. Okay. In any event, though, so he knows when there's been an influx of new people in um, uh, the bases because his his uh, uh, little areas within these bodegas get stripped clean of this product. And so uh, he has to refill at a, at a faster rate. This is good for him. His business goes up, his numbers go up, and his superiors like him for this. Mm. Uh, and he's been extremely stable. So it's just, you know, month after month after month of him driving this little truck uh, on this particular route. And he was telling me that, of course, he has to drive by these bases. And it's, uh, again, a situation of, you know, nine-foot-high chain-link fence topped by razor wire. Wow. Another set of fence that a car can, you know, with enough space that a car or a Jeep can drive between. And then a long, long, long distance. And then the airfields, as well as big um, steel buildings for hangars and repairs and operations and all of this. Mm. And then there's also the um, energy aspect of it. So they, they're continually bringing in fuel, and he'll, he's reported to me a couple of times of being slowed down because his, uh, he got stuck behind some of these long fuel convoys wow. where there were you know, quite literally 30 and 40 and 50 trucks that he used to think were carrying you know, diesel and gasoline, but now we both believe they're carrying aviation fuel. <laughs> in any event, though, his, um, he's noticed that, that this year – even beyond last year, which was exceptional. He made a lot of money last year supplying his product, and it was just a banner year for him. And he's only in into eight months now of this year, and he's done more business this year in his product in those bases than he did in all of last year. Wow. And he's sold out so many times he's had to do uh, extra runs just into this area to supply these 
the stores around these two particular bases. And then, of course, he reports to me as he drives by, oh, you know, I can see oh, three planes. And now he's saying, I can see 30 planes, I think, counting the tails, because they're so far Jeez. away that he can't get an accurate and, the, and he's talking 747s and C-130s. He didn't, and then there's some other Russian plane that's extremely large uh, that appears to be a uh, rental. Okay, it doesn't have Russian markings and stuff on it, uh, but it's like the equivalent of a C-130, and uh, the tail configuration has the, um, uh, the little horizontal uh, wings off the top of the tail. So they're, they're distinct, and he can see them differently. And he, he's just guessing we're both guessing in our email discussions that they're russian because uh, i know of a couple of russian um uh plane rental outfits that rent very large container planes yeah but but do, do these bases flight bases are they international like it's not just americans they let other players down there also not as not as far as we know mm. not in his entire time there the local bodegas, which are his point of contact to the personnel, because he doesn't know anybody on the bases, but he knows these store owners and their families, et cetera, because he's worked with them for 15 years. And they're not reporting, you know, um, uh, languages and people other than English and American. There's yeah, a, but- apparently about a third of their, their personnel involved are British. Right, but but if there are indeed Russian flights, that from that we can surmise two things. Down, one, they would have to remove the labels so that because if they're not supposed to have that as a base, I, I but understand. they're actually using it as a base, right? So so that would make sense. And the other would be the urgency of the matter if we're suddenly having a world corporation for this, whatever's going on. Correct, correct. It would speak to that. And, and he's never in the past years mentioned anything other than 747s predominantly. And it was only two years ago that he saw his first uh, C-130 that he could clearly identify was not a 747. Bear in mind that, you know, you're not really going to stop next to the fence on the side of the road, pull out your binoculars and have a good look. No. Uh, so he's just seeing it as he drives by and they are some distance off in the, um, or off in the, in, in a far distance, a number of kilometers. Still, he's trained, he's trained to observe. You have right. to, you know, trust his observations. I, I do indeed, because they've been so consistent over these past years. And he was always very um, fascinated with all the Antarctica stuff anyway. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Brazilians have a, a big intuitive connection to Antarctica and these kind of things. It was all heightened by the Falklands War and with all the British down there, et cetera, off of the coast of, um, of uh, South America. Mm. So, I'm, so I'm getting the same reports out of, of the bases for Paraguay and Uruguay that are staging areas for Antarctica as I am out of New Zealand, which is that they're moving material like nobody's business and they're doing it in the Antarctic winter. So something is very definitely up there. Okay. Uh, does the web bot say anything? Uh, I have some hints as to uh, connections with oddly, uh, or I mean totally out of place, but the uh, Voyager spacecraft. Jeez. Exactly. So, and so being able to look at the research around this, there are some really interesting things, that interesting dots to connect that, that don't make a whole lot of sense because we're, we're missing some dots, but they are starting to form a, a more cohesive picture. And so uh, the Voyager spacecraft were shot off like in 76 or 77. 
And they, I don't know why they did it, but, and they do this frequently, but Voyager 2 went out a couple of weeks or a couple of days before Voyager 1. Now, the idea is that these Voyager spacecraft are going to go out into interstellar space and go walk about to very distant uh, uh, solar systems. But so far as I am able to determine, we don't actually have proof that they've actually entered into interstellar space. Mm. And I don't believe that it's possible for them to leave this, the solar system. No, we discussed that last time. Right. That there may be a limit. Right. We do know that there is a continual energetic hiss that's being heard by the um, Voyager spacecraft and is being returned to um, uh, because they're still in communication with uh, NASA as uh, the controllers. In any event, though, uh, what I'm referencing is, is something that actually occurred in 87 um, in 1987. So, so 10 years after Voyagers had been launched, uh, there was a, um, a hiccup, a, a, a public disruption in the amount of information that was being returned from the Voyagers in terms of what was being disseminated out into the public at that time. And this hiccup has continued since then. So it's like they claim. Hey, Catherine Fitz speaks about this. Have you heard her speak about it? No, I haven't. I think it's Voyager. I'm going to have her on uh, in the end of the month. I'm going to ask her then. But but she said something, I think it was to Dark Journalist, about Voyager. They, they decided it should go black because they saw some kind of space station or base or something. I believe that to be the case. I, 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 I'm coming to this from a, um, okay. a different I hadn't heard about a base or anything. I'm just, that's my supposition yeah. that, that that it saw something in the region of the gas giants, you know, getting into the yeah, rings Satan, of Saturn. I think it was. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. Go on. Okay. And so whatever it saw in 87 changed the nature of how we dealt with Antarctica from that point forward. Wow. So I can trace back now, um, the, uh, logistics of it all. Okay. the, um, the type of jobs that were being offered, the um, kinds of airplanes and boats and the amount of material and stuff that was being moved into Antarctica suddenly changed in, in 87. I want to say it was 87. I don't think it was the end of 86, but sometime in 87, we start getting this um, uh, dramatically increased presence. And it was a personal, uh, now bear in mind, we'd had, Mount St. Helens erupt, and we had a bunch of uh, very large um, events that had occurred up in the Pacific Northwest. But in 1987, I became aware of the uh, increased traffic and the fact that it was uh, the traffic to Antarctica was, in fact, initially being staged up here at, at uh, Air Force Base McCord. And that that's where the origination point for a lot of the military traffic that went over my head uh, began. Mm -hmm. And that it was at that time that I recognized that, geez, they're moving vast quantities of material uh, down there. But, of course, it was during our fall that these planes would go and it was brief. There would be um, three and four, the flotillas of three and four C-130s that would take off and this would last for a few weeks and then it would be over. Now we're seeing that uh, escalation at an absolutely dr dramatic level yeah. to where the um, amount of material might have quintupled, the, the amount of stuff that we're moving down there. 
And then also, as we discussed earlier in the Antarctic series, when you crawl around with the Google satellite photos and you see even what you're permitted to see, you see very large numbers of ships and staging areas leaving vast quantities of material. At the weirdest places. Correct, at the strangest places. This is also why we know that their version of Area 51 has been moved away from the arrival uh, mountain zone and is now, you know, along further on the coast because there's there's um, uh, caches of storage containers that are, are small mountains that are being put off of boats along the coast there for some purpose, and there's no base anywhere near there. Now, of course, we also have to acknowledge that that uh, the Fitbit map uh, fiasco showed how many small uh, and large areas of uh, human activity exist in Antarctica, you know, on the order of several orders of magnitude more than we're being told about. Mm-hmm. So we know about McMurdo, but we don't realize that McMurdo is basically the center of a large amount of activity that could be compared with like um, the amount of activity you might see in a, from the Fitbit map uh, along, you know, the south uh, coast of uh, or the eastern seaboard coast of Florida. So it's just vast quantities of of uh, Fitbit uh, revel, uh, revealing of of new areas of activity there, including uh, you know some interesting uh, pyramids, et cetera, that that have shown up as a result of that. But what's rather interesting at the moment is the um, the logistics of the uh, of Antarctica in terms of the uh, instant scaling that has gone on in 2018 and its ability to connect this all the way back to whatever the hell it was they saw in those Voyager uh, uh, spacecraft photos that came back from Saturn and the rings around there. I think it's got, I think the powers that be, you know, Newt Gingrich and John Kerry and all these people that have been down there, I think they're all motivated by something that scares the absolute crap out of them. Yeah, and soon to be out of Erdogan of Turkey. Yeah, yeah. I told you about that. Uh, uh, it was Joseph Ferrell who made me aware. He he said the weirdest thing that they're gonna join the victors. Victory for of, over what? From who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, you know the treaty, the the joke that is the Antarctica Treaty says no nuclear. We all know. Uh, there's been nuclear even accidents down there. Nobody reacts, and this is back what we talked about that in the series. Sure, 70s. the late seventies. Yeah, yeah. No mining, and that ban, by the way, is up uh, in uh, when is it in the twenties sometime? Yeah, yeah. I thought twenty twenty three. Yeah. Uh, I bet they will start white mining. Then they're probably doing it black already, and no military and. And the military thing is a joke too, because I mean, they don't even hide it. So and so. No, no, you actually have to apply to the U.S. Yeah, military to get yeah. get permission to go there. Yeah. So 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 if there is increased activity, uh, and we know there is, and if there is damn hard security, and we know there is, and if there is an increased energy uh, activity, isn't that what you? Yes. Uh, assert, right? Right. Those three things makes me think that the most likely, and and then what you said about Area 51, all that makes me just think that, and especially now that you mentioned Voyager, it makes me think that it has to do with a relocation of the classified space program. It has to be something 
regarding that because Antarctica is perfect, no flight zone. Though uh, the physics uh, doctor I talked with yesterday, he said that although there's no planes over the poles, there are satellites all the time over the poles. Sure, sure, especially the Russians. They're famous with their polar orbiting satellites, right? But it's not a good place to actually launch from. It's not. Why is that? No, no. Well, because the, okay, it has to do with the um, uh, necessity for us, at least, okay, let me put it this way. It's not a good place to launch uh, rockets from for uh, space activity. It's not, doesn't make a good Cape Canaveral or anything. You notice that when they were doing the space um, shuttle, uh, when it would fly off, uh, it never went straight up. It had to do this arc and it turned into a spin, right? Mm-hmm. And the spin, the spin is necessary in order to be able to do effective navigation uh, from the planets because we're in a, a helical model where we're trailing behind the sun and not in a heliocentric one where the right. planets orbit around the equator of the sun. Mm-hmm. And thus, in order to basically what we're doing is from Earth the asteroid being drugged by the sun to try and get to the moon, which is our asteroid we're dragging, or to get to Mars, which is another asteroid being drugged by the sun and it's behind its corona. In order to get from place to place, there's a certain amount of um, dynamic spin that needs to be involved in the process. And it is that dynamic spin that you can't achieve easily from polar launches. But could they launch them, like you've seen this energy beam going towards Hawaii, could they launch them from Antarctica then into the Pacific where there's few witnesses and then go up? I don't I don't know that the energy beams are related in any way to, you know, at that level. In my way of thinking, they might even be uh, like uh, planetary defense beams or mm, mm. those kind of things. But um, no, that it would, wouldn't make sense to do that because of the distances involved. Bear in mind, uh, when you're using rockets, you know, some 90% of the rocket's force is um, uh, intended to uh, get you out of the gravity well of the planet. And so you have to, the further, it, you know, it's easier to launch from, the Himalayas than it is from the plains of, <laughs> yeah. uh, of Florida, right? Mm. Simply because you have less of that gravity well to go through. So those same constraints would apply if you were trying to do remote launching. So in that sense, the um, uh, you know the private satellites that launch and retrieve from ocean-based platforms are uh, you know they're they're able to achieve the spin, they're able to do the dynamic um, uh, navigation, etc. But they're they've actually increased their uh, gravity well by doing it from sea level. Uh, but of course, there's very few people out on the ocean, so you don't have the liability issues. Yeah. But nonetheless... Yeah, but they don't seem to care about that, because according to Michael Schratz's uh, info, which is very, very uh, superior and undisputable, you can see that for yourself, people, if you check out his lectures and documentation. They are doing it from inside of America all the time. Right. You can uh, measure it as he has done. So, uh, I mean, it's it's a matter of, you know, several times uh, an hour. So, um, yeah, as long as we know they're doing that, there would be no reason for them to... Use Antarctica to take on the extra work yeah. of doing it out of Antarctica, yeah, yeah. the South Pole or the North Pole, for that matter. Yep. Uh, plus, we've recently had the 
um, you know, the meteor explode over the Greenland uh, military base, an American military base in Greenland, some 47 kilometers in the air over it, a very large meteor exploded wow. and unknown level of damage was um, inflicted on the ground. That happened like maybe yesterday. Uh, and there have been Close other- to Tula or? Uh, correct, exactly. <laughs> and um, and there have been other meteors that have been falling uh, and impacting the Earth here over these last few years and stuff that are outside of our normal uh, meteor shower periods, the Torrids or or any of the other media uh, meteor clusters. And so this is this is maybe the uh, impetus, but I don't think so. I think they saw something that you know actually really scared them, other than a bunch of small rocks lying you know flying around that might hit us. Mm. Um, but in any event, the um, the response, uh, whatever is the trigger, uh, is uh, curiously enlightening uh, in and of itself. I mean, just the sheer amount of well, we're looking right now at at some say two thousand metric tons having been moved uh, so far this year from. Uh, the tip of South America and New Zealand, and usually the amount of material going into uh, Antarctica is only 1,440 metric tons over the course of a whole year. Uh, it is true that they've got larger uh, bases and more personnel down there, but that doesn't explain the sudden increase no. in this uh, in the first seven months of this year. No. Speaking of Tula, one of our listeners who listened to our Antarctica program told us that uh, his father was stationed in Tula in the U.S. Air Force, and he took a lot of, he often went to the North Pole and took pictures and blah, 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 and he uh, got traumatized from being stationed there. So he moved his family down to south of Texas, as far away as you can get. <laughs> exactly, exactly. A couple had of nightmares yeah. about monsters and stuff. He, he got a job in a classified space program, allegedly, because he was already cleared from whatever went up in the North Pole. Oh, okay. But he was completely traumatized from, from that ordeal. So, and, and I want to take this now. And now is a woo, woo, woo warning. I'm going to go off the deep end here. <laughs> Because we're speculating based on these facts, right? So, okay, if they're not launching a classified space program vehicles there, there is this possibility, you know, when stuff goes in spirals, you know, Kosarev and torsion and sure. yeah, all yeah. that stuff. Well, there is this layer to the whole Earth theory that because the Earth is spinning, those entrances at the poles are really, it's not as much a physical entrance to the inner earth well it may be that too but they're talking about a dimensional uh, like like the like the einstein rosen bridge phenomenon sure going on sure. and that could explain heightened activity because what goes in can or stuff can also come out right well but see okay and and there's the thing though i'm very much um skeptical mm. about the idea of anything interdimensional uh, because of the way in which the energetic nature of our planet is, it's my um, understanding that to move my consciousness uh, alone, let alone physical corporeal matter, into a, a different level of dimensionality here in the uh, materium would require energy that would probably destroy me in the process, mm. right? So, so it's just like the idea of time travel. 
that in order, if, if it were possible, if one accepted the idea that the past still exists and that these frames are hanging around uh, like the frames in a movie and it's just a matter of figuring out how far back you wanted to rewind and consciousness still existed in those frames, the ability to move your corporeal mass, let alone your consciousness, but just the mass of the body backwards or forwards through the dimensional time would require, in my way of thinking, nearly as much energy as is involved in maintaining the universe in that particular location. Yeah, that, that's basic Einsteinian physics, isn't it? But well, that... no, it actually, actually, I'm taking this from uh, the first uh, thinking about string theory and about the idea of... Um, the hyperdimensionality of individual particles. So individual particle, the thinking is, and in, in string theory itself is not really valid, but thinking about it provides us some real interesting uh, views of the quantum reality. And the idea that quantum entanglement is so strong that to de-entangle yourself from the, it's your entanglement with the, the time of your life uh, would put such strain even if you had the energy available to do it, that it would put such strain on your consciousness and your body that you would just simply would cease to exist. Yeah. It would it would just totally overwhelm the ability of your atoms to hold together, basically. Yeah, yeah. But, but even basic Einsteinian physics say that if you are going to go with the speed of light, you will, uh, you know, grow, you will expand. Right. Uh, and uh, apparently become... <laughs> <laughs> the entire area you're you're moving about. So uh, you also dismiss the possibility to go forward, not just backward, but also forward in time. Correct, mm. correct. I do dismiss that as an issue. I I say that it's possible to know from a consciousness level what's coming to you in the future mm. because of the way that the future is constructed and how we hold uh, components of the future individually and collectively. So really briefly, one can think of the human being as having multiple energetic shells, uh, like an atom, atom itself. Yeah, yeah, you, you go into this. Yeah, let's just plug the show uh, so you don't have to spend time on that now, that you actually go into this. I think it's in our consciousness show. Yeah, exactly. Or in the reincarnation show, one of those we did with you. So for all you Cliffordians out there who hasn't checked out those, because they were disappointingly low uh, numbers. Well, we have only launched Consciousness 1. But already the Antarctica 3 has surpassed that in numbers. So it just goes to show what we already speculated about. <laughs> yes. The deeper voo isn't that popular <laughs> as the material. Right. right. Well, you really have to think about it. But the actual um, events are very attractive to discuss. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, okay. So if, if we can't do it, others can't do it either. So then there's not a matter of stuff popping into our existence there and there feverishly battling that or something. That's not going on. Well, but it doesn't. Okay. But just because my understanding would say that this is, um, uh, physically prohibited and couldn't be done does not mean that they're not attempting to do it. Hmm. That other paradigms proffered by even mainstream science suggests that time travel is possible. Philadelphia experiment. Correct. And so you see them putting a lot of different effort into devices that may attempt to achieve that. And you also see that a lot of the um, uh, disinformation, um, uh, let's call it uh, the entertainment side of the woo-woo, uh, pick up on that and then say, well, you know, I went to Mars by way of a jump room or I've been a time traveler or they regressed me in time, that kind of thing. Right. Mm. And so they pick up on these memes and they promulgate them. And at some point, it gets into the the generalized um, collective 
consciousness. And so people actually think it might be feasible and we end up with maybe some aspect of CERN as an attempt to create mm. portals that, you know, might exist in time. Now, it is certainly possible in my uh, paradigm, my understanding of universe to travel outside of time. And so uh, let me point out that I think Antarctica would be a terrible place to launch rockets from. But if you had, um, you know, classified space program anti-gravity technology, that wouldn't necessarily pertain. So it may be very possible that uh, we have fleets of, of anti-gravity vehicles in Antarctica that come and go from there simply because it's not going to be observed. Oh. And it, they, would, they wouldn't be subjected to the same kind of activity uh, constraints that rockets are going to have simply because of the rockets being old style, uh, you know, physical matter being shoved along. Yeah. And the same thing would also be true about bases near the North Pole. Coincidentally, when I put on the night vision goggles and I go hunting for examples of the classified space program flying around, I see lots of them in areas that would be, could be thought of as being uh, accessible from polar bases. So I, up here in the Northwest, to get the good view of the um, nighttime activity you look towards in the summer, you look towards the um, constellation of Cassiopeia around midnight, which basically has you focused uh, towards the North Pole from your perspective, your, your local latitude. And, and this is where we see lots and lots of activity. I also get reports from people in Argentina and, and uh, people in Peru with the night vision goggles, as well as in Australia, that say, you know, basically looking south towards Antarctica is where they see a lot of the activity, mm. as opposed to looking towards, you know, equatorial zones. Right. Well, these reports are from people, not webbots, right? Correct. Correct. These are emails. Because we, I, I think we've polluted, you know, 200,000 people already checked out in half a year Antarctica show. That has to pollute your webbot reports. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can filter my own language, though, at some cost. Oh, so, in okay. other words, it reduces, I have this thing called model of model space, in which I take my own language and plug it into there, and then any cross-comparisons that come up with a 70% or greater correlation are simply eliminated from the data sets. Ah, nice. Now, I lose a lot. I lose a lot that may be valuable, yeah. right? Because someone yeah. may be discussing things in language that is 70% of the language I'm using, and yet doesn't... Yeah, if you're onto it... <laughs> Correct. <laughs> That's a problem. So, so I do lose something yeah. in the process, but it is controllable. Okay, interesting. Huh. But are you aware, and you talked about that there's an area there not flying over, but are you aware that there is actually an unclaimed area in Antarctica? And yeah. before you say something, I just want to add the information in case people don't know it, that of those areas that are claimed, which are, I guess it's uh, probably 80%, they are really battling over those few you know, so, some of them are, are claiming the same areas. So why would there be a huge unclaimed area? I think it's actually Mary Bird's land. I, I believe that that's the case. And of course, this is also related to the new Schwabenland. No, no. Um, uh, new Schwabenland is in uh, Queen Maud's land. I'm talking about Mary. No, I understand that. But it's also not visited. It's not being... Um, it wasn't uh, resettled on someone other than Germany. It, there's been no activity that we see in, in these other areas. So they're Ooh. basically just leaving it alone. Right. And, and funnily enough, you know the classic, The Thing? Yeah. Yeah, that was supposed to go down in Mary Bird's land. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep. Well, here's, here's something that's rather odd about a lot of this is that uh, a late entry into the Antarctic um, uh, stew of the political realm is, is Italy. And Italy is using more and more resources in the uh, New Zealand staging areas. And Italy is one of the, um, I guess that you'd have to say, appellants uh, for claiming some of the unclaimed areas in Antarctica. <laughs> now, also, also curious about this is that there have been recent discussions between the Italian government and many governments in the North African region about a joint claim. So, so using, using the Italian uh, pre-claim as the basis for, these, for this coalition, if you will, of, of Mediterranean uh, states, actually North Africa and Italy, that, that are going to make a claim on some of the Antarctic resources, I guess is the only way to, to state it at this stage. That whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, but, but they're claiming areas that are claimed, right? Not the unclaimed areas. No, it's my understanding that they're putting up for a big chunk of one of the unclaimed areas. Oh, okay, okay. In uh, uh, Marieville. And uh, so there, there's, um, you know, whatever is the um, council or the deciding body now has to deal with lobbying from uh, Italians and North Africans. Uh, to this position it makes total sense that part makes sense right but I, I just thought it was weird they haven't done it yet because chinese for example what do they do they're very clever they're operating on the border of queen maud's land and the next claim on both sides of queen maud's land they're not operating inside of queen maud's land but at the border right to the next claim and i was thinking that's because you know when the time comes that the whole Antarctica ownership is up for re-debate because basically the only one who recognizes the claims that's already there are those who already have made claims. Correct, correct. <laughs> Everybody else doesn't recognize. Yeah, it. if you if you have a seat to the table, right? So, so I was thinking, okay, if you stage yourself on the on the border, you you're kind of playing your cards well for the time when they're really gonna renegotiate this, right? Yeah. But what the Italians do is what I would expect everybody to do: just take that unclaimed area. Well, the other aspect of this that's curious, too, is that the North African states are being funded in this by the Chinese. Right, right. Yeah. So they may have a, you know, a, an interest in disturbing the existing status quo towards their own benefit. Mm. Yeah, of course. Why not? But right. still, it, it's still uh, a little weird. It, 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 it certainly is good grounds for, you know, substantiating our speculations in the Wu area. Right. And another thing about the Chinese, by the way, is their um, uh, purchase and, and redevelopment of uh, large-scale port facilities in Patagonia and on the far southern edge of, um, yeah, uh, of Venezuela and Argentina. Okay, because I knew they were already taking over Africa, but, but South America too. There is uh, another aspect of South America. I wonder if it's Uruguay or Paraguay. Where is it that Bush has this? Uh, That's Paraguay, I believe. Paraguay. Bush, Merkel, several of these globalists are setting themselves up there because there's, uh, they can't be touched by the law there. The law of the land protects them. Uh, they can't be reached by war courts, stuff like that. But anyway, there is this wild rumor in the woo-woo world about this black goo. I don't know if you've heard about that. And sure. apparently there's large deposits in 
close to where Bush has set up his base. Oh, I hadn't heard that. I had heard about this stuff as uh, an aspect of the uh, Falkland Wars. Uh, yeah, there too I've heard about it. Yeah. Uh, I discount a lot of that uh, because it all traces back to a single source that's never been replicated by leaks from any other place. Okay. Well, it seems a little far-fetched to talk about alien bacteria and taking control and whatnot. And all these are excellent decoys exactly. for the superstitious, right? So don't watch what's really going on. But there's one actual thing going on, and I sent you the link. They uh, Was it New Zealand or Australia? There's these guys who have uh, South Pole <laughs> sightseeing flights. Yeah, yeah, that's New Zealand, yeah. And that's so, first off, I support it 100% because the more activity of outsiders is going on down there, the better for us all. But it has to be quite risky. I mean, let alone all the stuff we're talking about and, and what happens to people in boats down there. Just having a plane there, what happens if you, if you crash? You're done for it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And also the weird avionics. That if you go too close to the center of the yeah. continent, your altimeter goes and your your magnets go and none of the electronics work. Yeah, I'm pr- pretty sure they're just going about in the outskirts. But nonetheless, an interesting thing I noticed is that they say we never, and that goes against any reason, especially for commercial stuff where security has to be tight uh, for, for their own benefit, life and stuff. But he says we never go the same route twice. That's interesting. It's always a new route. Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) How many repeat visitors do they get so that they're worried about boring them by seeing the same things? Well, yeah, but then they say there's always something going on. So, you know, no matter if if they had the same route, it would be spectacular. But you're right. It could go to for a commercial reason. But it just also means that they are increasing their chances of stumbling over something. If they're random, exactly, they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that uh, you know, that didn't make any sense relative to uh, how the military has run access to Antarctica in these past, uh, you know, four decades. So, so the fact that these guys are claiming to be able to provide sightseeing tours makes me wonder, basically, what's up. Yeah, it, it has to be sanctioned. Yeah, and in fact, I wonder, do they have to get the orig- the usual sanctions on the individuals that are the passengers in the planes? Bear in yeah. mind that to get um, access to Antarctica, even as a passenger on a cruise ship where you don't ever land on the continent, uh, you still have to submit your passport to mm. the Antarctic Control Authority, which is basically the U.S. military. And that's the weird thing. They claimed you don't even need a passport. You only need to be able to get to New Zealand. And then you can jump on board and, and take part in this. Well, okay, so then they're not submitting their their guest list to I bet they do. that level of uh, stuff. Again, that's very atypical. Plus, yeah, it is. Plus, uh, I'm, I'm thinking I didn't check the prices, but it wouldn't surprise me if this was for the upper class. And, and then, uh, I would imagine so. Just the fuel to get you there and back safely is going to be hugely expensive. Yeah, and the people on the advertisement looked like elderly, wealthy, retired people. So, yeah. but nonetheless, I I encourage people to go on those flights. Uh, see what happens. Are you denied? Uh, can you go there? Uh, 
film. I mean, people were taking pictures and filming all the time. But of course, it can be sanctioned just as a part of hyping. We talked about that last time too. They're hyping the continent. There is as if they want people well, we, to. Okay, we know that that's actually the case, that they want um, uh, more people down there, and they're actually broadening out the categories of uh, work classifications that allow you to get jobs there. So, you know, we don't, we're not yet down to the point where, uh, you know, baristas are being hired, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, it seems to be moving in that direction. Yeah. And, and so as that goes, I mean, obviously the last time I checked, there were over 3000, uh, listed jobs in Antarctica. And this is the, like the, let's say the bottom 20% in pay grades are all relatively new classifications of jobs that are not involving science or the maintenance of science gear mm. that are much more mundane in the sense of, you know, physical therapists and nurses and this kind of thing. So they're trying to build yeah. up a more generalized um, human infrastructure and in the support of other humans that are there. And it used to be that all the jobs in Antarctica were basically directly, you had to in fact have multiple disciplines yeah. because space was so tight and, and they were all directly in support of some form of a science um, yeah. uh, endeavor. And these days that's, the vast majority of the people that they're hiring don't appear to have anything uh, in contact or any any direct contact with the science part of it. And one of the curious components of this is the sheer number of uh, at and it was probably back in January or so of this year that I saw these. And so uh, that's going to be at the end of the summer in Antarctica, and they were hiring for this coming summer season, which is, you know, in fall in North America or in Northern hemisphere. Mm. But I saw that they were hiring large numbers of heavy equipment operators and heavy equipment operation mechanics. So, uh, much more so than in the past. And in fact, it was only five years ago that you would see, uh, job categories of heavy equipment operator. And we're talking, you know, uh, caterpillars, excavators, you mm. know, bulldozers, these kind of things. Prior to that, these were always uh, subcategories of jobs from people in various motor pool occupations in the military that ran the these devices. Now they're, they're getting a workforce that's, uh, you know, caterpillar savvy, so to speak, can operate all this heavy equipment uh, uh, very well and professionally. And they're giving the support staff to support those people. And mm. the, it's, it's different where you might see on these jobs, job categories on this one particular board I'm thinking of. There's were 3,000 job categories available in Antarctica and, and an estimate, not a, a, a firm number, but an estimate. So it would say over 100 uh, physical therapists were needed. Mm. And you'd go and you'd look at the, um, the various separations. And even within the heavy equipment operation field, there were excavator, you know, um, expert excavator operators, and they needed 35 of those, but they needed 150 uh, heavy cat D8 and above operators. And so uh, there were just simply a large number of those jobs available. Right. No, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of what I call the whitewash. Because when you have stuff like the classified space program, let's say Mars, if they've been to Mars already, and 
you know, it's the direction it's heading. It's unavoidable. There are going to have bases there uh, in the white world. They have to come clean about it. That's when they start talking about, let's go to Mars. Exactly. Let's send, uh, you know, you can apply to become one of the first, obviously not the first, right? But in this paradigm, it's how they acclimatize us. And before you know it, it's gone mainstream. And then they don't have to explain that they've been there all the time. It's the same with chemtrails. Yeah. Uh, if they're already doing weather modification, uh, then at some point, as they have been now, starting to talk about, oh, let's do this thing that the conspiracy theory has. Sure, said. sure. And the geoengineering conferences yeah. and et cetera. Right. Yep. Yep. right. And I have been doing it all the time. That's what it reminds me of. So Antarctica, we've been doing stuff there. It's increasing. Okay, now let's get the white world on board. It's what I call a whitewash. So that's what it reminds me of. In which case, it means we're heading there. It's unavoidable. And anybody who's around for, let's say, 10 or 20 more years will see it come to fruition. And this show will be here, hopefully, all the time online. And they can see if we were right or not. Cool. Yes, indeed. Yep. Yep. It's always nice to have that feedback. Exactly. Now, this was, thank you for contributing to part four of, I guess, 40 yeah, of how many? Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Yes. So I expect... To be determined. Yeah, exactly. So thanks a lot, Cliff. No worries. Uh, it's going to be a blast, a riot. Cool. Yeah. And hopefully we'll we'll see some more action on the consciousness and the, um, you know, the reincarnation. But I, I think I agree with you. Deep woo requires a particular mindset and maybe yeah. it requires winter weather to hunker down and listen. <laughs> exactly. That can, that can be it. But don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Okay. Excellent, man. Did you get to say all that you wanted? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no. I, I needed, I got out what I needed to. Yeah. Very excellent. Cool. Well, Cliff, we'll not solve the mystery today anyway, but uh, thanks for this little update. Sure. This will be fun. As usual, I'll send it when it's out there. Okay, sounds good. Mm. All the best. Thank you much. You have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Forum Borealis and thanks to Cliff High for his additional inputs to the fascinating Antarctica subject. Now, before I bid you adieu, let me stress that it is very important if you're, if you are a supporter of the forum, it's very important that you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Yes, you may think you are subscribed, but in case you don't know it, YouTube or the algorithm uh, is unsubscribing lots of people from independent channels and subscribing them to mainstream channels. Obviously, as I have predicted for a long time, in a desperate attempt for the mainstream TV channels to survive the, in, in the internet age, and the only way to do that is to take over the main platform or what's been the main platform. This may change in the future, of course, and continue their existence there. However, that's not sufficient because it's not just a platform that makes people not watch TV. It's also the contents. So I guess this sneaky way of subscribing people onto their shows and advertising them in, I bet even on this show today, if you look at the right side where they recommend shows, there's probably going to be a few mainstream corporate TV channels or shows. 
even though it has no relation to the YouTube program you're now enjoying. But that's how it goes, and uh, we just have to adjust. So double-check, and remember to click the bell. Uh, you probably heard every other YouTube show nag about the same thing, but it is required. It's not an, sufficient to be subscribed, because even though one would think that if you subscribe, you would want updates, but no. The bell is required too, and as I said, even so, you're not guaranteed to get updates from us. And we don't release shows that often. We are more concerned about quality and, and making long, in-depth shows. So when we drop a show, it may be two, three, four hours, compared to many others who drop 10 to 20 minutes every other day. So in amount, it equals up, but in frequency, not so much. And that makes us more sensitive to the update to the notification problem so um, do that subscribe click the bell and check that you are subscribed and if you're listening to this uh, as a podcast at one of the podcast platforms we'd appreciate you subscribe there too because if we have a high number of subscription chances are they will be more featured so this is the best way to support us. You can, also, of course, uh, drop us a coin. That gives you access to our website, where there will be a minimum of five unreleased show at, shows at any given time. But lately it's been, and for a long while now, it's been 10, 20 unreleased shows. We've, been, we've uh, kept up a certain pace in releasing it at our website, but the bottleneck has been getting them up out to the public on YouTube and all the podcast platforms. We'll um, mend that, hopefully, get more shows out. Uh, but again, we are entirely listener-supported, so if you help us out, we will deliver. I found a beautiful quote for you I want to read upon parting. It's from a fellow uh, named Andrew Denton, and it goes like this. If Antarctica were music... It would be Mozart, art, and it would be Michelangelo, literature, and it would be Shakespeare. And yet, it is something even greater, the only place on earth that is still as it should be. May we never tame it. Considering the contents of today's show, a futile plead, perhaps, but let's hope not. That's it. Thanks for listening. Your host has, as ever, been your pal Al. Thanks to my faithful team and, of course, your important support. Until later, be seeing you. Number one.